You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. You know, it gives me great joy to uh, invite uh, one of our leaders. Uh, you know, Mark is. You know, our dear brother of the Lord, he's been with our church now for over a year. Him and his lovely wife, Tina, and the children. Mark uh, works as an amazing business manager, but also he comes from a background where he was uh, supporting a, a church. South River is one of their pastors, and we're so blessed to have you, brother, in our church. I know that, you know, you love Jesus and you love His Word, and I know God is going to use you mightily this morning to speak His truth to His people. So church, would you give our brother Mark a huge round of applause as he comes up and opens up the Word of God with us. Thank you, Pastor. Let's put our hands together for Jesus this morning. He's the only one worthy of our praise. And uh, he's the only one that really that uh, is worthy. And Micah, don't worry, they come with a manual. You can download it, baby.com. You download them. Everything you need to know about babies is in there, so don't stress. But to the missionaries, you guys are are, are real rock stars. I mean, it's easy to give a message here. It's hard to do it on the the front, on the cold front. So I absolutely salute you guys, and and you're amazing. And I look forward to hearing wonderful testimonies when you get back. And Daryl... You're a legend. You can make a message out of anything. So, uh, <laughs> from a tunnel to <laughs> God is with us, the light is with us. I was in that tunnel with you just then, and thank you, Pastor, for this opportunity. Um, you know, we have an amazing church community here. I'm so blessed. Tina and I are so blessed. The last eight, um, a year or so have just been amazing. So, this is an interesting passage, a very tough passage of Scripture this morning that we're going to get into. Um, and, and before I start, why don't we pray? Let's bow our heads. Father, uh, Holy Spirit, we need your presence here. I need your presence to, to speak your words, to think your thoughts. Uh, use me, Lord, as, as your vessel this morning to explain this difficult passage. Lord, we pray for uh, uh, heart transformations. We pray that everyone here will, will not leave the same as when they came, Father, that we'll understand you a little bit better this morning. And, Father, that we'll be conformed into the wonderful image of your son, Jesus. And we, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 So this, this is uh, an incredible opportunity. Thank you for, for asking me to speak, Pastor. But um, my assignment this morning was really to continue in this series that we've been doing all year on, on Mark. And um, this morning I wanted to look at nine verses uh, that we really could spend a whole week going through if we, if we really wanted to. And like I said, it is a hard passage of Scripture. Um, and, and I've broken this message into three, three kind of components if we can go back to the beginning of the, um, yeah. So uh, uh, into three components, love, repentance, and sacrifice. And I really want to just address the context of which Jesus speaks of this this morning. Um, and if you're old like me and you've got an old Bible that's got the words of Jesus in red, uh, and if you turn to it, you'll notice that this entire passage is in red lettering this morning, which means these are the very words of Jesus Nobody else, but these are the words of Jesus that we're going to read this morning. And I think that's important. I think that is significant. Um, and, and, and here, Jesus warns us of the need to be vigilant in our walk with him. 
The consequences of not walking a surrendered life of love, repentance and sacrifice could result in the very fires of hell. And that is the significance of what Jesus is speaking to us about this morning. You know, there are 162 references uh, in the New Testament that warn of hell. And over 70 of them were uttered by Jesus himself. Half of the references nearly in the New Testament in reference to hell were spoken of by Jesus himself. Jesus spoke about hell a lot more than he, than he spoke about heaven. And I think that's significant. So I think Jesus was quite serious in this passage. Uh, and, and, and in fact, the place he's referring to in this passage is a place called Gehenna. Um, and Gehenna is an interesting term. It's, it's always a, a term that it relates to the lake of fire, not just the temporary place of the dead, which is known as Hades. So when, we, when, when people die, uh, and, they, uh, and if they're not saved, they go to a place called Hades, and that's a place where they just have a soul, not a flesh body. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and in the fullness of time, that place will be thrown into this place, Gehenna, which is the lake of fire where they have an actual physical body. And uh, it, is, it is literally a place that burns with fire. And, um, and it's interesting to know where that word Gehenna came from. The root word of, of that word is uh, from the Valley of Hinnon, which is found in Joshua 15. It's a steep ravine uh, that goes down to a valley uh, south of the city of Jerusalem. And this was a place where Ahaz and Manasseh, two of Israel's kings, offered human sacrifices to this god Moloch. A horrific place where Jews would sacrifice their babies. Can you think about that? Where, where they would actually go and offer their babies to this false god. They would burn their babies alive on the metal arms as this god would heat up in the desert. And they would, um, they would hear the screams of the, of, of the babies burning on these arms uh, as an appeasement to this God. And thank, thank goodness Josiah, he was a good king and he put a stop to human sacrifices and turned this valley into a, a rubbish dump for the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where they would dump rancid food, raw sewage, dead animals. And, and of course, when you've got those components in a rubbish dump, there'd be maggots and worms that would feed on that, on that waste, and there would be a fire that would burn 24 hours a day, seven days a week to consume that. So that's, that's the image that Jesus is trying to give us when he talks about the context uh, of these verses. And, and it is a perfect image for, to describe the place of hell. I told you it was a heavy message this morning. <laughs> um, now hold on to that image as, as we go through the words of Jesus this morning. And so far as I could see from this text, I see three major themes. I, I see the theme of radical love, which we will talk about in the first section. I see the theme of radical repentance and then uh, the theme of radical sacrifice. Radical love, you know, to love like Jesus loves. Knowing that every child is a child of God. Every believer is a child of God. Radical repentance, to radically reject sin in our lives and to have our lives line up with the word of God. That's so important, that the word of God becomes our authority. Yeah? And, radical, and to be, uh, radically become living sacrifices. What does that mean? That means um, that, w that whatever we are, whatever we end up being in life, whatever we end up doing, whoever we are, we lay it down so that we may fully gain him. 
we become a sacrifice that we may know Jesus better. What is that radical? What is radical? What does the word radical mean? It means to fundamentally or in an, extre- in an extreme way change our behavior. And that's what the Christian life's call, life calls us to a radical or an extreme change of behavior or attitude or heart. Yeah. So let's look at the first uh, passage here radical love. If anyone, let, let's read from Mark chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This verse consider, uh, that calls us to consider what radical love towards another believer might look like. Radical love does not lead another believer to sin. Jesus warns us in, in this very severe statement that if you lead another believer to sin, it would be better for you to die a horrible death. Die a horrible death rather than lead another believer into sin. And this is the first warning Jesus gives us in this passage. Um, and the reference to children is the simple believer. The Christian who's not sophisticated, doesn't know every verse in the Bible, doesn't spend 23 hours a day studying the Bible, but it's the simple believer like you and me. The one who seeks to be faithful and obedient to Jesus. Jesus warns that if people who are puffed up with knowledge or puffed up with their status of the church, if people use their arrogance to cause even one of these little ones to stumble, that they are exposing themselves to the chastisement from God. That's, this, this is heavy-duty stuff. Is there any believers in this house? Put up your house if you're a believer. Now, if you've got your hand up, look, look around. You're called to love those people with their hands up radically, unconditionally, because that's, those are the people that Jesus is talking about in this passage. doesn't matter what they do, how they offend you, how they come against you, how they might gossip about you. We are called to love radically. Jesus makes the comparison here that it would be better for that person if a millstone were tied around their neck uh, and thrown into the sea um, rather than causing one of those, one of, one of the people who just had their hand up to stumble. And, and, you know, that's an awesome burden to place upon pastors and leaders in the church, you know, that they don't destroy the faith of simple believers, simple Christians. Um, and I've been to so many churches where pastors, good, good, intended, uh, good intentioned pastors, have caused believers to, to, to stumble and slip. And it's really quite sad that so many believers are no longer in church today because of the, the effects of having that, that sort of leadership. Um, now, Jesus introduces a metaphor here that is quite terrifying. He said it would be better for that person if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast into the sea. So I, I uh, pulled up an image of what a millstone might look like. Uh, in the ancient Jewish community, one of the most important products they produced was grain. Uh, and that grain would be, used, uh, would, be, would be ground on the thrashing floor and would be used in every part of their life. And it was predominantly to make flour and that was a staple in their diet. And the millstone that was used, uh, looks like the one on the screen here, was so heavy and so big that a human being couldn't turn it. They would use a beast of burden, an ox or a donkey, to turn that mill. Um, and, and except for one, one exception in the Bible, and that was Samson, if you remember. He, he also was strong enough to turn that, that, uh, 
that stone. But Jesus says, take a stone of that weight and tie it around a person's neck, the person who injures one of the little ones and throw them in the sea. That's pretty harrowing, isn't it? That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. That person would be better off having that tied around their neck um, uh, than causing one of the little ones to stumble. And the sea for the Jew was a place of torment. The, seas, the Jews didn't like the sea. They fished in lakes. They fished in the Lake of Galilee. And who knows when Jonah was, who remembers when Jonah was on the boat? They threw him overboard because they thought he was bad luck, yeah? Um, so if, if you cause one of the little ones to stumble, sheer terror is your destiny. That's radical love that we have to make sure every step that we do is in, in love. How, so how could we cause one of, these little believe, one of these believers to stumble? There were four ways that I could think of. Uh, first is by direct temptation. If you tempt someone to sin. If you tempt someone to sin morally. If you invite people to lie, to gossip, to cheat. If you invite people to love the world. There are a few ways that we can tempt someone, uh, people to sin. There's also direct, indirect temptation. If you provoke someone to jealousy by flaunting what you have. Um, you make that person covet what you have. That's also a sin, yeah? If you provoke them to anger, indifference or unkindness, that's a sin. By setting a simple example, who knows that we are so watched, especially if, you, if people know that you're a Christian, people are watching you. We have a, there is a greater expectation on the way we live our lives, yeah? We can't continue to live like the world and yet call ourselves Christian because you're setting an example perhaps a standard or a benchmark that other people will follow. So it's important that we, that we set a good example, a godly example that people will follow. And the third one is failing to stimulate righteousness. So failing to provide an example, or, or sorry, but uh, failing to encourage godliness in other people, failing to encourage other people to do good things, to do good works, to live righteously. So Jesus does use strong language here and a strong metaphor uh, an image to describe the fate of those who destroy the faith of the little ones. And that really, like I said, is a call to radical love. The kind of love that works very hard not to be a source of sinful solicitation to another person, a love that seeks someone's best, a love that seeks to elevate, a love that seeks to purify, a love that seeks to bless others. That's what we're called to do, because that's what Jesus did. And 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and we all know this from when we go to weddings. They read 1 Corinthians 13. Um, let's read that scripture. Uh, that, that scripture. Love does not in, enjoy someone falling into sin. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not, he's not puffed up. Do not, uh, does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Uh, is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, uh, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's an amazing scripture. Fervent love helps others towards holiness. That's why we, you know, that's why we have connect groups. That's like Daryl was saying, um, you know, to, to love on each other so that Christ may be fully formed in us come together as believers to encourage each other, to love on each other, to help each other. 
That's the purpose of connect groups, to love like Jesus loved, unconditionally, completely, sacrificially. And, and um, not only does Jesus in this passage call us to love radically, but he also calls us to purity through uh, radical repentance. And that's, re- that's my second point this morning. Why don't we read in Mark chapter 9, 43 to 48, radical repentance. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And that's that image that, that we were talking about earlier. So that's that, that rubbish dump that was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So what does Jesus, uh, so what Jesus does here, he, he makes another comparison. In the Old Testament, it was a serious sin for people to disfigure themselves. And Jesus understood that. Because to the Jews, they held their body parts as sacred. They were a gift from God. The eye, the ear, the hand, their feet. They were gifts from God. And and Jesus knew that to tell people to cut off those body parts was kind of countercultural. Yeah? Um, And uh, yet Jesus says, as precious as your hands are to you, you'd be better to cut them off than to sin. As precious as your feet and your eyes are to you, it'd be better to pluck them out and remove them from your body than be cast into hell. That's significant, isn't it? So obviously the comparison that our Lord was making here is that whatever is precious to you, it cannot be more precious to you than the kingdom of God. Whatever you hold precious in your life cannot be more precious than your relationship with Jesus, than the kingdom of God, that your, your eternal destiny, because that's what's at stake. When we miss it, and who knows we will miss it, whether it's a lying tongue, feet that go places they shouldn't, uh, eyes that look lustfully at another, we need to be quick to repent. We need to be quick to deal with our sin, and we need to remove that sin far from us as fast as we can. You know, I've had situations in my life where, you know, I've either fallen into sin or I knew that something wasn't right. And I just knew that I had to deal with that sin radically, get rid of it from my life, so that I could restore that relationship with God, my relationship with God. Because that is the most important thing that we have in our life. Um, you know, one thing that kept tripping me up, I, you know, and every time I would be tripped up by this particular sin, I would fast the next day because I would say, Lord, I want to put my body under. I want to crucify my flesh that I may come back into right relationship with you. And if we have that kind of, that heart of repentance, the Lord will meet, meet you where you're at. He'll come and say, son, it's okay. You're Okay. Let's keep, the, keep going on the journey and he'll help you through it. And you might miss it again. 
but you keep at it, you keep at it, that soft heart towards the Lord, yeah? And in fact, that, the gift, uh, uh, in fact, repentance, Paul in 2 Timothy, he calls it a, a gift. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, then with meekness, you'll be able to carefully enlighten those who argue with you so that they can see God's gracious gift of repentance. God's gracious gift of repentance and be brought to the truth. Well, thankfully, God does grant us this gift of repentance. You know, we are saved by grace alone. Who knows that this morning? By grace alone. It is all God's work that we are saved. We are here only because Jesus has called us here. Um, and, and it's the salvation... It's his work alone. It's called the work of justification. It's called justification. It's just as we have never sinned. Who understands that? Justification. So we can stand before a holy God just as we have not sinned. That the penalty for that sin has been dealt with in, in, uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the process of sanctification. This is where there is sin in our life, but it's a work that Jesus does to purify us, to take that sin out of us over a journey. That's, this is the Christian walk, that when you give your heart to Christ, that's only the beginning of your walk, that now that, that, that justification is taken care of, the process of sanctification continues until the glorification, until Jesus comes and then we're in glory with him, the third part of our salvation. Um, the process of sanctification. This is conforming us into the image of Jesus. Taking out of us all the sin that so easily ensnares us. And who knows, it's so easy to fall into sin. Yeah. So how would we define repentance? And I have a definition up there. Um, uh, def uh, repentance in the Greek is, is metanoia. And loosely translated, it means, uh, meta means to change. And noia means um, uh, mind. So it's, it's a change of mind, right? But it actually goes much deeper than that. Here it says it's a change of heart. Or it could also be called, uh, said it's a change of character. That those things that used to be good to us and right to us are no longer good to us. Who's ever experienced that in your Christian walk where all of a sudden, after a while, the things that you used to enjoy you don't enjoy anymore. Or the things that you used to think were good, what, once you read the Bible, they no longer line up with the Word of God, so you think, I need to deal with that and remove that. That's the process of sanctification, and that's what true repentance looks like, yeah? The things that seem like are no longer appealing. Our nature has changed. We are, we are born again. We are new, a new creation, yeah? And this change of heart... Uh, or change of character, the Bible calls a gift, as, as we've just read. So real repentance says, I want my whole life to line up with God's word. That the old way of doing things is no longer appealing to me, but I want my life to reflect what the word of God says. What he says I will do, I will obey immediately. Um, and it's to abstain from fleshly lusts. Uh, lusts. Um, if it's to love selflessly, you know, even though someone doesn't deserve it. I mean, who are we to judge if someone doesn't deserve our love? I mean, if Jesus can love me, I, I, I think I should be able to love anyone. doesn't matter what they do to me. A person who can't forgive is a person who doesn't know how much they've been forgiven. 
if it's to forgive anyone who comes against us. Um, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see the test of our hearts, yeah? Why don't we read this scripture this morning? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Who knows that there's two types of sorrow linked to our sinning? Uh, here it says the first one, godly sorrow, leads people to repentance and ultimately will lead people to eternal life. But the second one is worldly sorrow. Uh, this leads people to death because it's not true repentance. What, is this, what does this mean? What's the difference? Godly sorrow is concerned with how we've hurt the heart of God. That once we sin, our only concern is how we have offended a holy God, a God that loves us, a God who sent his only son for us. Worldly sorrow is how the sin might affect us, how it might affect my marriage, how, to, how it might affect my ministry, how it might affect my public standing. That's the difference between godly uh, sorrow and worldly sorrow. They're two different, and the best way to explain it is in the lives of two kings that we know pretty well, Saul and David, yeah? So Saul, as we all know, disobeyed God and killed the Amalekites, except the Amalekite king. And when the prophet Samuel confronted him, he admitted he had sinned. Who remembers? He admitted he had sinned, and he even was apologetic. He even asked for forgiveness for his sin. But what was his response to the prophet after the prophet challenged him? In 1 Samuel 15.30, it says, Then he, this is Saul, said, I have sinned. He's acknowledged he sinned. He's owned up for his sin. Yet honour me now. So Saul was concerned with how it affected him. Honour me now, please, before the elders of, of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He was worried about his, king, his, his kingdom, his throne, the people, the elders of Israel. He wasn't concerned with how he had offended and disobeyed the one true and living God. That's what worldly sorrow and, uh, 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 looks like. And, that's, and we know what the result was for Saul. He wanted the prophet to honour him publicly because he had been rebuked publicly. So he wanted to restore his position with the people of Israel. Now, look, now look, let's look at David. David also sinned. We all know David's sin. He'd taken a woman who was not his wife and made her pregnant. That's pretty bad. And then to cover up that sin, he had her husband killed in the heat of the battle. So adultery and murder were David's sin. That's, that's, that's pretty heavy stuff. And then the prophet Nathan confronts him. And David publicly uh, confronts him publicly. And, but let looks, let's look at David's response and how his response was quite different to Saul's. In 2 Samuel 12, it says, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So that was his act of repentance, his act of contrition, laying on the ground. So the elders of the house, now you've got the elders of Israel, arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. That's how seriously David took his sin 
David lay prostrate before the Lord for seven days, even though the elders and the people tried to raise him up, he wouldn't have it. He remained on his face in repentance for seven days. And of course, we can read his prayer in Psalm 51. Who's read, who's read his prayer in Psalm 51 when he was seeking the face of God, when he was seeking repentance and forgiveness from the Lord? It's an amazing prayer. David had no regard for his throne. He had no regard for his title or what people thought of him. His only desire was to restore relationship with God. That is a true heart of repentance. When we miss it, and like I said, we'll all miss it. If there's, if there's anyone in this room that says they, that they never miss it, we need to pray for liars, yeah? Because we'll all miss it. But we need that heart. How have we hurt the heart of God? How can I restore my relationship with God? And that's what radical repentance looks like. David didn't care that he, that he was the king. You know, he, he certainly didn't care what he looked like before the people of Israel. He needed to restore that relationship with Jesus or with the Lord at all cost. When Jesus is saying, remove the very thing that causes you to sin, do it at all cost. Because not doing it doesn't make you a lesser Christian, doesn't make you a bad Christian, doesn't make you a sec- oh, I'm a Christian on Sunday or a second class uh, Christian. Not doing it could result in you ending up in hell. That's the consequence. Sin that you tolerate in your life, so sustained sin that you tolerate can have the consequence of leading you to hell. That's how severe Jesus is in these verses. And let me conclude with this one point, and this is a verse I saw probably 20 years ago and it's always stayed with me, but in Hebrews 12 it says, pursue holiness without which nobody will see the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. I want to see the Lord one day and hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. So in order to hear those words one day, we have to pursue holiness at all cost. A righteous lifestyle that lines up with him and it starts with a repentant heart. Yeah? Are we still friends after this little section? And thirdly, radical sacrifice. What does that look like in our life? Let's read the last section of this passage. Um, Mark chapter 9, verses 49 to 50. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavour, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. Now, what the heck is that talking about? I have no idea. That is so cryptic. Salt and fire. So I ask this question, where do we see salt and fire come together in the scripture? And that's what I had to ask myself. So in Ezra 6, I see it says there that salt needs to be stored up to be used in sacrifice. And in Ezekiel uh, 43, it also says that salt needs to be used in sacrifice. And so I think that is the answer to this question, that salt is needed in sacrifice because sacrifices are burned, Right? Who knows that sacrifices were burned in Israel for the children of Israel. So salt was added to sacrifice as a symbol of God's enduring covenant. Salt is a preservative. We all use salt to preserve things. 
and, and to add flavour. But in this context, salt was a preservative. But there is one particular sacrifice that fits perfectly here. Let's look at Leviticus 2. If you looked at Leviticus, um, in the opening five cha chapters, Leviticus deals uh, with the type of sacrifices that the children of Israel were to offer. Uh, in chapter 2, there's one particular sacrifice which I think is quite fitting, uh, and that is the grain offering. Uh, and it's described, uh, and, and, and in verse 13 it describes that offering. Why don't we re read Leviticus 2.13. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt, to be, uh, salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. So salt symbolises God's promise, God's covenant. And who knows, if you are a child of God, if you're a born-again believer, you have a covenant with a living God. Who believes that? You have a covenant with a living God. That God's enduring faithfulness, uh, that God enduring faithfulness as you make that offering, yeah? Now, what is the grain offering? Well, there were five offerings, as I said. Four of them were animal sacrifices. So the four were the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Those were all animal sacrifices, and they all represent the atonement for sin. That's not what we're talking about in this passage. The grain offering is not an animal sacrifice. It's not a sin offering. Um, it's an offering of consecration, of dedication. It's an offering of devotion to the Lord, complete and utter de uh, devotion to the Lord. It symbolises our devotion it should symbolise our devotion to the Lord. Who understands that? Who can see that this morning? You gather up the grain and you make the sacrifice of your grain on the altar. Uh, and then this is covered with salt, which speaks of the durability of the covenant of God, uh, the endurance and the permanence of this offering to God. It means that we know that God will be faithful to the covenant. He's faithful to the covenant. And it means that we should also be faithful to our Lord. We should consecrate our lives to God at all costs. We are making a total sacrifice, a long-term enduring and permanent offering to God. That's what consecration looks like. That's what a sacrificial life looks like. We say we are going to follow God at all costs. Who knows that when you become a Christian, everything gets easier? Life becomes so easy. In fact, I didn't know what a hard life looked like until I became a Christian. <laughs> because there, there is an enemy to God. And he, 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 he walks around like a roaring lion. And he, he will do everything he can to take us off the path. And it, it takes a life that is laid down before him. That you crawl up on that altar... And you say, does it matter what you throw at me? Does it matter what the devil throws at me, what life throws at me? I'm not going to get off that altar. I'm totally going to dedicate myself to Jesus Christ. That is a, a life consecrated to Jesus. And in Romans chapter tw two, uh, 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Listen to that. 
which is the expectation of one. It's your reasonable service to, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. There's really no wiggle room here. We have to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice on that altar. That's what the, the grain offering is talking about. It's denying yourself and taking up your cross to follow Jesus. This is giving yourself wholly and totally to Jesus. And like I said, it's not easy being a Christian. Again, I love how David says it. He says he will not offer something to God if it does not cost him something. Who remembers that? David wasn't prepared to make an offering to God unless he could buy it and offer it. It was given to him for free. But he said, no, I want to pay for it because it needs to cost me something. Our life, to follow Jesus, it needs to cost us something. If we say that we're a Christian and we live like the world, we really need a question if we're actually really saved. Our lives need to line up. We need to pursue holiness. We need to be that sacrifice for Jesus. You know, maybe that offering is your friends, the friends you run around with, the friends you hang out with. Maybe that's what you need to take to the altar and lay down today. Maybe you know they're not good. Maybe you know they're not following the Lord. Maybe you know that they're leading you into trouble. And I say it to Christian, always be careful of who you hang around with because if you show me your friends now, I'll show you the man you'll be in 20 years' time. Maybe your friends are who you need to take to the altar. Maybe it's a wrong relationship that you know you shouldn't be in a relationship and you need to lay that down before the Lord and say, Lord, I want what your will for my life. And if it means taking the short-term pain for the long-term gain, then that's what I want in my life. Maybe it's a job that's become an idol to you. A job that you love, that you're good at, that you're making lots of money, but maybe it allows... It doesn't allow you to do anything for Jesus, to, to go to Agape, to come to church on a Sunday, to go to connect groups, or even just to read the word or have a private devotional time. Maybe it's become that big an idol in your life. Maybe you need to lay it on the altar and say, Lord, help me to find balance. Help me to find a way that I can serve you and still maintain a, a good uh, a work-life balance. Maybe that's got to be our sacrifice this morning. Whatever it is, it cannot mean more to you than a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a sacrificial life. It has to become the most, Jesus has to become the most important person in your life. Your relationship with Jesus is paramount and everything else comes second. That's a consecrated life. If it doesn't lay it down, sacrifice it on the altar. And, and as, I, as I conclude, I, I just love this verse. I love how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3, chapter 3, 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Isn't that an amazing scripture? You know, Paul, a Pharisee, a learned man, as a Pharisee, he would have known the scriptures off by heart. He would have been revered by his peers. He was actually commissioned to go and hunt down the Christians. So he thought he was doing the very work of God. Yet he considered all of that rubbish. That he may gain Christ. That he may come to a greater knowledge of who Jesus is. He... 
he took those things and threw them on the metaphorical rubbish dump like we've seen in here. He offered his body to be stoned, to be whipped, to be shipwrecked and ultimately to be beheaded. Yeah, we're thankful. We're so thankful that we live in Australia that we don't have to endure these things. But that was the, that was the extent that Paul was prepared to go to in order to live a consecrated life, to make sure that that relationship with Jesus was number one, that he fully gained Christ and offered himself as a living sacrifice. Why don't we stand this morning? And, and I want to ask you a few questions. Who wants to live this sort of life for Jesus? A life that is a life of radical love, radical repentance and radical sacrifice. Everyone should have their hands up. I know that's, that's the life I want. I want to live a life that is so surrendered to Him that the world cannot even get a foothold. So if you, if you say to yourself this morning, just say, Lord, there's some sin in my life that I haven't dealt with that I know that is there and I need to deal with it. Today is the day. Don't leave here without dealing with your sin today. Why don't we close our eyes? And, and, uh, and if, if that's you this morning, why don't you just put your hand up and say, I've got some sin in my life that I want to repent of right now. I know I've been tolerating sin and I want to make it, I want to make my life, I want to make uh, my life right with God today. Put up your hand this morning and we'll pray. Father, we know that you are a good God. We know that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive our sins. And Lord, I've been carrying this sin around with me for so long and I just want to lay it down before you this morning. Take it away, Lord Jesus. Help me to overcome it this morning, Lord God. Help me to live a life surrendered to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone here who says they want to love, they're having, stru- uh, 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 they're having uh, struggles with loving people unconditionally, loving like Jesus loved, loving fellow believers, put up your hand this morning. Just say, let's just pray together. Father, help me to love. Help me to love other believers. Help me to love the unsaved. Help me to love like Jesus, like you love, unconditionally. Lord God, when I go into a dead and dying world, help me to love on people that I see in the street, in the workplace, in the schools, in uni. Help me to love like you. Let your love flow out of me and touch a dead and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name. And and lastly, if you want to consecrate yourself this morning, if you say, Lord, I want to climb up on that altar, a relationship, a friendship, a job, something that has taken uh, a place greater than you in my life. Let's just pray this morning. Father, I lay down whatever idol has crept into my life this morning. I want to give it to you. I lay myself down on this altar and I ask you, Father, help me to restore this wonderful relationship with your son, Jesus. I need that above all things, Father, and I want to follow you all the days of my life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much. Why don't we worship together this morning, yeah?